what happened in Memphis and what can be done about it. Plus, Ron DeSantis, COVID hero or COVID jabroni. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Philip Phil Klein, and the sage of authenticity, Woods. Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a Nashview podcast. Our sponsors this episode are Ball and Branch Sheets and the Bonson Group. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said Anything. So, Jim, I made a solemn pledge to myself that I had to get a jabroni reference in uh, a wonderful word that uh, I hadn't been reminded of until the Chiefs pulled out the win against the Bengals Sunday night. Did you watch that game, Jim? I did. Yes, I tuned in towards the uh, to the earlier game between the Eagles and 49ers right as it turned into a rout right before the halftime. Uh, and was relatively bored with the rest of that game. So I was actually glad to see an exciting down-to-the-wire contest. And uh, yeah, I'm all for, you know, mayors supporting their their hometown teams, but you probably should not trash talk the opposing team and question the paternity of the opposing <laughs> team's quarterback. It's probably going to backfire on you. And, and a locker uh, room, some locker room material there. So I, I had, had to run some errands uh, and listen to, to parts of the game and then then watch the end. But did, did you think the officiating was particularly bad, as the Bengal fans are saying? I, I can see the gripe on that last, you know, late hit. There's no doubt Mahomes was indeed out of bounds. There's a question of whether the defender was deliberately hitting him or whether it was his own momentum. Um, look, the league is getting much, much more protective of quarterbacks than it used to be. And that, you know, defenders know this. And so they have to be careful about that. So you'd rather not have the game end on a, you know, disputable call. I know Bengals fans believe there were a whole bunch of calls that didn't go their way, but uh, yeah. I, I don't it know was, if I buy it into the clear, idea. It was a clear penalty on, on Mahomes. It wasn't vicious or malicious, yeah. but it was a clear, a clear foul. Okay. So, so uh, much, much, much uh, less, less happy uh, news. Uh, have this terrible case in uh, Memphis. This video was teased on CNN and elsewhere for days and unfortunately li- lived up to its advance uh, notice. So Tyree Nichols traffic stop. He, he runs after he's stopped and the cops try to restrain him, which is never a good decision, never ends well. You know, if, if, if these, these poor guys would ever just, if they just, get in the police car, get on the ground, get their hands behind the back, whatever. You know, it's like watching a, a terrible horror movie. A, a lot of these police encounters have gone wrong. Anyway, he runs and these, these guys can't uh, restrain him, can't cuff him. And uh, a, a cop I always go to in, in these sort of cases who's very pro-cop is is really harsh in this case on, on the cops, just saying you got five guys trying to restrain, you know, 145 pound, 150 pound guy, and they can't do it. And, and um, he, he characterizes Nichols resistance or non-compliance as defensive in nature. So if you tell someone, put your hands behind your back and you pepper spray him in the face, his hands are going to go to his face, right? You tell him to get his hands behind his back and you kick him in the face, his hands are going to go to his face. And so after this, this long struggle, they hold him up. It's a little unclear, you know, which cop is exactly doing it, but just slugs him repeatedly in the head. I mean, we haven't seen the official autopsy, but everything indicates they beat him to death. You know, he, he dies uh, three days later and um, 
uh, just a, a terrible, a terrible case. What do you make of it? So I think it's uh, unfortunately in, indicative and, in, and demonstrates. <laughs> so something terrible happens, something that is abominable, inexcusable, indefensible, the sort of police action, behavior, attitude that cannot be defended. And raising this supremely serious issue, what do we expect from our police officers? What do we, you know, we know they have tough jobs. We know they have to make quick decisions. But, you know, as somebody pointed out, never mind, you know, questions of innocence or guilt, the police are not supposed to kill people uh, other than under extraordinary circumstances, you know, hostage situations or things like that. And instead, you know, but what we saw immediately was the use of these five officers who are African-American, that this was a demonstration of white supremacy, that even black cops can be racist against black suspects or black citizens. Um, and instead of shoehorning this into a narrative of, oh, white supremacy strikes again, I was, you know, one of the uh, guys I like to refer to when I have questions about the FBI is James Gagliano. He's been on all the networks as one of their, you know, law enforcement analysts. He's retired FBI. And he's writing in the, in the New York Post today, and he brings up some really important points that have not been front and center of the discussion of this story. Memphis Police Department, particularly post-George Floyd, but I'm sure for years, wanted more African-American police on the beat. There are a lot of good reasons to have African-American police on the beat, developing a good relationship with African-Americans in the community, et cetera. Uh, two years ago, they decided to try to attract more minorities by lowering the education requirements. It relaxed the rule that recruits had to have an associate's degree or 54 college credit hours. All right. Now, it does, you know, as he points, as Gagliano points out, it's not always a determined, if you've been to college, that you're going to be a good cop, but it does measure a certain level, maybe your maturity, your judgment, your discernment and reasoning. Um, and, you know, they re reduced the number of college credits and they also offered signing bonuses and they waived felony convictions, the, the, you know, uh, all in the name of equity. Well, you know, the question is, were these officers properly trained? Were these officers uh, prepared to handle a circumstance like this? Were these officers good cops or were they a disaster waiting to happen? Certainly the evidence is pointing in that latter direction based on what we know so far. Yeah. So Phil clearly seemed poorly trained, poorly supervised. There's no sergeant on the scene. They managed to pepper spray themselves again when they're when they're five of them all, all of whom as far as i can tell are, are much bigger than nickels so this is just a debacle and then you have the malicious beating on top of the incompetence yeah i mean it's obviously an egregious example of overreach by several officers um but I think that the the difficulty that we have is that you always have this sort of um, no matter what the situation the this sort of racial overlay um, and Van Jones um, in sort of a widely debated piece for CNN tried to make the case that the fact that the officers were black doesn't mean that it wasn't still a racist targeting of a black person. And what he said is that the race of the victim matters, but not the race of the perpetrator. Um, and to me, and I know Charlie um, wrote about this, it seems to me at a certain point, you're kind of reverse engineering the situation so that it always leads to the conclusion that it's, it's racist. Now, 
I don't, I, I think that the broader issue that we have is that whenever you concentrate power um, and you give people power and some discretion over the use of power, that basically you end up with abuses. Um, it doesn't mean all police are bad. It doesn't mean all police are racist. I'm sure that there are police who are have racial animus and that is a motivating factor for some of these encounters that we see. Um, but it's also not. And I think that, look, how many times have people gotten pulled over by cops and they sort of sweet talk the cop and they're able to get out of, uh, you know, be let off with just a warning or something to me. Um, that's also an abuse. Obviously it doesn't have the ramifications of abusing power by beating somebody to death. But even if you're pulled over, either you were violating some sort of law or breaking some sort of rule or need to be administered a ticket or something or not. And it it shouldn't be up to whether you sort of are respectful enough to the cop. Um, And so I I think that um, because the left has gone, is often so ridiculous in its attack and over the top with the defund the police and abolish the police and seeing police as the, the root of all evil in the world and because conservatives respect the enforcement uh, maintenance of law and order, there's sometimes a reluctance to sort of criticize, you know, things. And I just think that, you know, it's, it's, it's fair to sort of say that, look, there are a lot of examples in which police abuse power. And I think that we need to kind of look at what how do you sort of strike the balance between training police properly so that we see fewer incidents of this um versus on the other hand um you know obviously keeping our our streets safe and not making police feel like you know good cops feel like they're sort of being tarred um by the abuses of some bad apples yeah, so Charlie, I, I think the, the case you can reasonably make is those cops made assumptions about Tyree Nichols, especially as soon as he ran, right? Um, but they would have made the same assumptions very likely about a white guy if he ran. And it doesn't have to do with race at the end of the day. It has to do with observed behavior that you know 9.8 out of 10 times when someone runs from their car, <laughs> it means they have drugs in the car, they have illegal gun. You know, it means it means they're they're guilty of something and they're a bad actor and and you know you have to be uh, 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 um, you know on 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 guard. Uh, but the assumptions were wrong in this case, and then there was an element of of just taking revenge on the guy that uh, led led to uh, uh, led to ultimately to his death. I don't think we need a overarching unfalsifiable theory such as the one that was advanced by Van Jones and has been preferred in some quarters to explain what happened here. The five men who did this were indulging an instinct that could well have been on display 
1950, in 1150, in 1050 BC. This is unfortunately a part of the human condition. It is probably more acute in men. Men, when put together, often become gangs. Sometimes that's benevolent, sports, the military. And sometimes it's not. And if you look back to critics of our constitution, Woodrow Wilson, for example, they try to tie its insights to technology or to the social issues of the moment. And so Wilson will say, when the constitution was framed, there were no railways, there was no telegraph, there was no telephone. But the the point of the constitution is to confine and counteract and leverage ambition and greed, and in some cases, evil. And none of those human characteristics change. I see an attempt here to tie what we saw in that video to the political disputes and fashionable ideologies of the moment, instead of understanding that men and to a lesser extent women do terrible things. Now, I find it quite appalling that we are hearing from those who believe that this is the product of white supremacy in effect, that the five black men who committed this crime cannot be judged by the same criteria as everyone else. One of the most moving photographs of the civil rights era is of the group of African-American men holding a sign that says, I am a man. Now, I believe them. I believe that's true. When they held up those signs, not everybody did. Many people thought that African-Americans were inferior. What they were essentially doing was channeling the Merchant of Venice. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? Well, there's a flip side to that. I am a man implies a capacity for love and fear and the whole range of human emotions. It also implies a capacity for evil, for cruelty, for getting carried away. And I think what we saw here was five men getting carried away in exactly the same way as five white men could have, or mm -hmm. five Hispanic men could have, or five Japanese men could have. And I think if we really believe that we live in a country in which all men are created equal, and I do, then we have to judge them as our peers, not make excuses, not mm -hmm. say, well, it was the latent culture. It was the pernicious influence of the majority. The way that they saw this man was corrupted by this, that, or the other. I think we saw man's capacity for evil on display. And I think that we should interpret it as such. And I'll finish by saying, I do, of course, think that we should have conversations about training and qualification requirements. And we should try to weed out bad actors from the system. 
But unfortunately, you're never going to be able to do mm -hmm. that completely. There were Americans in World War II who committed war crimes. The intention of the U.S. military, in the vast majority of cases, was not to commit war crimes. But when you put people in stressful situations and you give them agency, sometimes you will discover that you really, really wish that they hadn't been there. And this seems to me to be a good example of that. Yeah, so Jim, it, se it seems to me um, a, a pretty uh, strong blow against the racist police narrative generally, because you easily could see white cops doing this and it'll be, oh, you know, started in 1619. But the, the reason why these black cops did this is poor training and supervision element of it, as we discussed, but, and as Charlie points out, then there's anger in the moment, there's poor decision-making, there's cruelty, um, maybe all those things together. And those are human qualities. Those are human failings. And if black cops can do that, and it can be the explanation for a terrible event like this, white cops can do it too, right? And that's the likeliest explanation for the misconduct of white cops. Doesn't mean that there aren't racist uh, cops. Obviously, there are. But um, th th this, this goes to a, a fundamental human element that is always kind of uh, er eroded away so, so our political culture can go to this reductive, simplistic explanation of, of racism for everything. Yeah. Look, if the takeaway from Memphis ought to be black cops can be every bit as abusive as white cops. For anyone who doesn't understand, that is not good news. <laughs> I suppose if you have a, a deeply cynical view of human nature, you can say, oh, we're all, we really are all equal. We really are, you know, uh, each, you know, perfectly capable of sin. Um, but, you know, the, up, the upshot is that you still end up with a situation of having abusive cops on the force. And I know these cops are going to face justice to some degree, but every single city is probably sitting there thinking, uh, okay, we've got X hundred police on the beat every day. What if even a handful are like these guys? It doesn't take, they don't mm -hmm. say, you know, a, a few bad apples spoil the bunch. A few cops who are abusive, even if they're not, you know, fatally so. Uh, a few cops who are abusive to suspects, abusive to those that they arrest, uh, who hassle, you know, young black men for no good reason. You know, just a handful of those will be absolutely toxic for relationships between the community and police officers. Mm -hmm. So you got to weed these people out. And I think it shows we got a really long ways to go before these folks are, uh, these bad apples are weeded out. Yeah. And, and Phil, you need accountability, uh, any institution where uh, people have power. And I think clearly this, this incident, others have done the same vindicates body cameras, although body cameras weren't necessarily the, the most telling view here. It was a, a camera on a pole, but still the, the basic point stands. If you can rely on the cop's account afterwards and the press release you're getting from the police department, that, that uh, uh, may not be uh, an accurate rendering. And then you're, you're addressing this a little earlier, but you know we should honor police and make them as professional as possible, have, have uh, high qualifications uh, requirements and uh, pay pay them well, and th then you can get good cops. Doesn't mean that we're ever going to, as Charlie points out, stop these kind of incidents um, from ever happening. But you can you can end up with with better police forces. And we've been, you know, ironically, in the reaction to the George Floyd killing, heading in the opposite direction in a lot of jurisdictions. Yeah, and I mean, and it's worth keeping in mind that the reason why these incidents become 
national news is it, they're not the norm, right? I mean, this is an egregious case, and that's why we're talking about it. But the idea that people like to perpetuate is that this is happening all the time, and we just don't have the videos of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and which is to say it never happened, but if you think of how many police encounters there are on a daily basis in the in the country, clearly this isn't the normal, you know, the normal situation of what happens. Um, it, it, clearly we have these situations that are happening too often. And I think that it would be bad to conclude from this that there's never any racism at all and no cases. I think that we just have to look at individual situations individually. And I, I think that there's a risk to, to unlock one explanation that somehow confirms people's priors that explains every example mm-hmm. of police excess. Um, there are situations in which police react quickly in a situation and it's a pure unfor- it's it's a pure quick mistake that maybe you could see somebody being made the the difficulty of this situation and this the George Floyd um uh killing is that in those situations it wasn't sort of a quick police are in a neighborhood at night somebody reaches into their pocket you know the the police think it's a gun and open fire mm-hmm. it's not it, it's a situation in which it happens over a long period of time and there were plenty of times for police to stop it wasn't sort of a quick mistake decision um and i mean i i think that qualified immunity is one thing that we that um should be revisited um, as an example. Um, And we should think about how to train people better um, and make sure that there is sort of accountability for uh, the cops that exceed their authority. But it is difficult because at the end of the day, I mean, socially in society, socially the race issue and the, the debate over race is is so uh, contentious, but at the end of the day, it, you know, if, if the police uh, beat somebody to death, like it's hard to, di- how do you distinguish? Like, was it race that motivated them? Was it like power? Did they have anger management issues? Was it poor? I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it's hard. I don't see particularly how, in, if you're looking at something in, let's say, a legal standpoint, how you say, oh, well, did these officers act out of rate, you know, subconscious structural racism when they were beating somebody to death, or did they just beat somebody to death um, because they thought they could and, and they were going to teach this guy a lesson? So, Charlie Coca, next question to you. In reaction to Memphis, there will be a, uh, a Congress will pass a national police reform or national police "quote unquote" reform bill. Yes or no? I don't know, but it shouldn't. If you want to hold these people accountable, then hold them accountable. Hold them accountable. Hold the five people who did it accountable. Make them pay for what they did. Don't pawn it off on some amorphous theory that serves whether 
it's intended to or not, to diminish the responsibility of the people involved by turning them into automatons. If the reaction to this is for Congress to indulge the idea that what happened here was other people's fault or the product of a lack of national superintendents, then we will miss the forest for the trees. Tim Garrity, National Bill. Uh, your original questioning was whether it would be a, a bill or a so-called reform bill. And I think, yes, definitely there will be a so-called reform bill. Emphasis it on- It will pass. Yeah. Pa- pass both houses. Yeah, but, you know, it'll be uh, window dressing, effectively. Hmm. Phil Klein? Um, yeah, I think it will um, pass. I'm going to say uh, no, and I'm with Charlie and and hoping not. And th- there there is just the – there's a non sequitur here as well as, you know, we talk about this often with gun control. But people are like, wow, we, we really need this this bill to ban chokeholds nationally when this had nothing to do with chokeholds. And chokeholds obviously can go disastrously wrong. But if they actually used a, a chokehold, it would have ended um, – uh, they, they would have gotten them on the ground and gotten them cuffed quite quite quickly. So the, the idea that this incident should lead to the passage of that federally uh, is is insane. And I imagine there'll be a, a lot of uh, disagreements between Republicans and Democrats on what actually we need to do that will sink federal legislation. But we shall see with that. Let's go to Charlie for our first sponsor, Ball and Branch Sheets. Ball and Branch Sheets, enjoyed by three presidents and by people who can't be presidents. That's me. Well, we are in that strange period here in Florida when it is both cold and hot. Probably not cold in ways that most of you would recognize, uh, but cold to me and certainly cold at night. And it is nice to have a great set of sheets to cozy up in when it gets cold. And luckily, the great set of sheets I have to cozy up in are made by Ball and Branch, which means I can stay cozy with a set of buttery, soft sheets every single night. The 100% organic cotton threads get softer with every single wash. Now, we've had these sheets for, I don't know, two years, and they really are better than the others. That's because Ball & Branch uses the highest quality threads on Earth. Their sheets are made from slow-grown organic cotton for a superior softness, They're buttery to the touch. They're super breathable, so they're perfect for both cooler and warmer months, or as it is in Florida, perhaps uh, months that feel both. They're loved by millions of sleepers. They're luxurious enough to be loved by those three U.S. presidents that I mentioned, and they have over 10,000 raving reviews. And they come in 10 versatile colors in all sizes, all the way from twin up to California king. We should rename that to Florida king these days. They're designed to feel incredible for all sleepers. They're made without toxins. They're free from pesticides, formaldehyde, and other harsh chemicals. They fit the deepest of mattresses. They're labeled with top and bottom tags. So if you're a bit of an idiot like me, you can make your bed without error. And Ball and Branch will give you a 30-night risk-free guarantee with free shipping and returns on all U.S. orders, not that you'll want to send them back. If you want to take advantage of this, Make most of your bedtime with Ball & Branch Sheets. You can get 15% off the first set that you order if you use promo code EDITORS15 at ballandbranch.com. 
That's ball and branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. And the promo code is editors15. Awesome. Thanks, Charlie. That was very compelling. Almost as good as your best Moink reads. Quite Nearly? All right. I'll yeah. have to do some work. So, Jim Garrity, we have Donald Trump finally out on the campaign trail, did a couple of events, right? One in New Hampshire, I think a state party event, and then one in South Carolina, and I believe it was on the his plane where he made this comment about DeSantis uh, exaggerating and distorting his record on COVID and saying DeSantis shut down the beaches. Actually, Charlie reminded me yesterday via text that DeSantis did shut down a couple beaches. This was a short-lived thing, obviously, but uh, Trump made the case as Florida much worse, much worse and much more restrictive than uh, other states. Clearly, Trump uh, feels defensive on this score and knows, assuming DeSantis runs, that this is something that he's going to use against the former president. Well, this is a classic Trump response to what is likely Trump's weakest point in an expected, you know, presidential primary showdown between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. Donald Trump would intermittently uh, make comments that encourage the opening up of society. But by and large, he went along with what uh, uh, Dr. Fauci was recommending, what Burks was recommending. After the fact, Trump talked about how much he couldn't stand Burks and how it was so clear her evidence was, so, uh, you know, her arguments were crazy and he hated her scarves, blah, blah, blah. Of course, he never did anything when he was in a position to do something about it as president of the United States. But yeah, so yeah, we, we remember, I, I'm sure Charlie right now is ready to erupt like Mount Vesuvius. But uh, we remember that nut job dressed up like the Grim Reaper going around saying that if he went Oh, yeah, bar, that guy. Ulberger, whatever his name thanks, is. You know. Thanks for reminding me. But, you know, like, like, we know, like, we, we were there. We, we watched it. The entire country was trying, you know, the entire national news media was trying to convince you that uh, Florida was the most dangerous place in the world because they weren't taking COVID seriously. And Ron DeSantis was, you know, ignoring public health experts. The only person who may have gotten it worse was Brian Kemp in Georgia, because we all remember the Atlantic headline, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. And now, you know, so the classic Trump response is to simply ignore all that and rewrite history and pretend that Trump was the one trying to reopen society and that DeSantis was terrible on this and DeSantis was shutting things down and stuff like that. It'll work as long as there's national amnesia and nobody remembers any of the events from 2020 and 2021. Mm-hmm. So Charlie, walk us through the the DeSantis record on this, because it isn't true that um, DeSantis was uh, full-blown DeSantis, you know, from day one on the the pandemic. There were shutdowns in in Florida. He'll he'll argue that they were more permeable and flexible than than shutdowns uh, elsewhere. But I went back and I I wrote this piece, Where Does Ron DeSantis Go to Get His Apology on COVID? And on May 20th, 2020. So, you know, basically two months in, it was clear that he had a distinctive approach and had thought it through and had a a different take on what the uh, response to the pandemic would be than certainly was the the conventional wisdom. I think that the key part of your question was thought it through. DeSantis was not a reflexive ideologue on this question at any point. He thought it through. Irrespective of one's view of the conclusions 
at which he arrived, there is no doubt that he slowly changed his mind as to the efficacy of lockdowns and masks as time progressed. In the early days, he acquiesced to the federal requests that he and every other governor received. In fact, the first governor in the region to move on from lockdowns was not DeSantis, but Brian Kemp. But DeSantis made more of a deal of it, and I think was probably more interesting to the national press because Florida is a bigger state. It's a state that is visited by more people. And he was seen even then as a potential candidate. He had a very high approval rating prior to COVID, 72 to 75%. He was winning 50% of Democrats. So what happened in Florida was an initial period in which DeSantis agreed to lock the state down. And from the center ordered beaches to be closed, restaurants to be closed, bars, and so forth. And then started to back away from it, but allowed counties to issue stricter rules than the state required. And then he, maybe two, three months in, started to publicly oppose the idea of lockdowns as being economically damaging and educationally damaging. And before long, leaned hard into the vaccine as the means by which Florida would escape the virus. I think what you're seeing now from Trump is an opportunistic, attempt to pretend that because DeSantis in the early days was indistinguishable from governors of other states, that he therefore did not dissent from the prevailing wisdom at all. I don't think it will work. I don't think it will work for a couple of reasons. First, because it was Trump and his administration that pushed the states to lock down and with whom DeSantis initially degree, uh, agreed. It was Kemp who stood up against Trump. Trump criticized Kemp <laughs> when he was asked about Kemp's uh, decision to open up. Mm -hmm. um, the second reason I don't think it will work is that we're not stupid. And we all remember that after two or three months, DeSantis and Kemp and a few others said, look, we're going to take a different approach. Um, we're going to loosen our, our rules. So, Phil, it, it, Trump's a kind of complicated case on, on COVID, but clearly his instinct was that all this stuff is a, is a bad idea and, and let's get rid of it. But he, he just didn't or couldn't follow through um, for for whatever reason, and and there are these cases Charlie mentions, you know, perhaps the worst, criticizing Georgia for opening back up, and it's just just hard to see 
how Trump is going to make this work just by, by the very fact alone that Fauci was at his right elbow during, during the entirety of the, the pandemic. And, you know, again, there'd occasionally be leaks or, or Trump would indicate his unhappiness with Fauci or there'd be speculation that he was going to fire him, and, but he never did it. Yeah. And I mean, for all the reasons that um, Charlie and Jim stated, the, the charge against um, DeSantis is, is ridiculous. Everybody in the world, every leader in the world pretty much adopted this sort of lockdown approach in the early time of the pandemic. What DeSantis did and Brian Kemp is that um, earlier than most people certainly earlier than most most leaders in America basically reached the conclusion that there was very little that the government could do um, in terms of lockdown orders and various other things to really make a huge dent in COVID and that whatever marginal benefit, if any, might be derived from the various restrictions was more than outweighed by the disruptions to everyday life. So he basically decided not from day one, but relative to other people relatively early, he decided that it's, it's, it's going to have to be up to individuals to make their own uh, risk calculations. And Trump, for months and months um, after DeSantis, um, went along with issuing and supporting a lot of these sort of lockdown orders. Um, and now, with all of that being said, and it's true to play sort of the flip side of it in terms of how will this sort of play with voters, um, I'm not necessarily so sure. I mean, the record is pretty clear, but um, Trump's success in the past um, has been that he's been able to just convince people of narratives that aren't particularly true, that just make up. I mean, he called Jeb Bush um, low energy when Jeb Bush was doing three, four, five events all around New Hampshire um, and a day and Trump would you know, take his private jet in and do one big rally, you know, a couple big rallies a week, right? I mean, there are plenty of criticisms of Jeb Bush, but that he would just say that and that sort of stuck. And I think that the issue, the, the, the question, if this is going to be successful is I think everyone knows DeSantis's brand as the, the sort of COVID warrior. Do they remember the period when he closed pizzas and stuff? Does this feed into the sort of sanctimonious idea that he he portrays himself as this warrior of COVID, mm-hmm. kept everything open? But oh, look, does everyone forget that in March twenty you know twenty there were beaches in Florida that were closed, et cetera, et cetera? I'm not necessarily saying I'm betting on it working, but I would say that. We've seen in the past where Trump's just been able to get certain things to stick, even if it's not necessarily supported by the evidence. Um, And so I I think it'll be an early test of him here as to whether or not he's able to do it. I mean, he he was able to just, you know, he he decided to to go after Ben Carson was happy, was 
super popular then he just decided to go after ben carson and then ted cruz sends out an email or someone affiliated with ted cruz before the iowa caucus is saying there's a rumor that ben carson's going to drop out and trump uses that to say well iowa was stolen ted cruz stole iowa with this one email and then ben carson endorses him and so forth so again i think for all the reasons outlined it's a ridiculous line of attack it it doesn't mean that trump hasn't it won't work ridiculous yeah. attacks before so charlie we're obviously going to talk about this a lot we've already already talked about it a lot but we're going to talk about it some more here what's your rating of trump's potency. I was struck by this the statement he made about DeSantis on the plane, ridiculous statement, but he has this natural authority and charisma to him uh, that's stu- stood him in really good stead in 15 and 16. And I don't think it's it's disappeared. We got polling all over the map, polling a week ago, had DeSantis ahead in, in New Hampshire. I think there was a more recent New Hampshire poll that had Trump ahead. You have Trump still leading national polls, especially when it's a multi-candidate field. And our friend and colleague, Matt Continetti, wrote a column late last week saying, hey, look, guys, don't underestimate him. He's still, uh, he's still got juice. He's been helped by the, the discovery of the Biden classified documents. And you might have the same kind of dynamic setting in that um, served him so well in 15 and 16, where everyone's a little afraid of him. And you know wants to tear down someone else in the hopes that that eventually they'll they'll get this be the second place guy. So let, let's uh, let's take shots at DeSantis and try to tiptoe around Trump. Well, with the usual caveats that I was wrong about Trump last time, I am not convinced by that argument for a couple of reasons. The first I've mentioned before on this podcast, I don't think that the conditions in the Republican Party are the same post-Trump as they were pre-Trump. I don't think that Trump has this freestanding ability to destroy anyone with words and nicknames. I think you have to have dissatisfaction within the ranks as the prerequisite. And when you do, those barbs land. When you don't, as I think is the case with, say, Ron DeSantis, then calling him Ron DeSanctimonious and trying to rewrite the record sounds peculiar. I also think that we are now in the fourth election cycle since 2016. The prospect of Donald Trump in 2015-2016 was largely unblemished, unmarred. He had all sorts of flaws Certainly, I was not a fan, and I'm not one now. But it was tough to make predictions with anything other than guesses or conjecture. Now, he's lost. I understand why he has pretended so vehemently that he did not lose, but he did lose. and. The other candidates in the race, at least potentially, won. Glenn Youngkin won. Ron DeSantis won. Greg Abbott won. Trump lost in 20. He presided over a poor showing in 18. And he was widely and correctly blamed 
for the poor showing in 2022. The difference between Trump candidates and non-Trump candidates was profound. And I don't think that that's irrelevant. In fact, I think that matters a great deal. I think that Trump is now the establishment. I think that the instincts that led to Trump becoming an insurgent candidate may well work against him. There will be some portion of the electorate that is grateful to him and that sees politics through his eyes. I do not believe that it is sizable enough to cost the Republicans the election, but it might be big enough to affect the primaries. But I don't think that the average self-interested Republican, when they are standing there with their hand hovering over the lever, is going to say, well, I would prefer to assuage Donald Trump's ego than I would to improve the country. And I think that that is going to work against him, even if he remains stronger throughout the primaries than I would like. And I think that's possible. I and mean, it's never been my prediction or the prediction of others who think that Trump will not prevail in this primary season, that he would be a walkover, that he would be an also-ran or an afterthought. The prediction has been that it will be hard fought, but that he will lose. And I still believe that is the case. So some other inter-Republican news, just as we are beginning to record this Tuesday morning, Mitch Daniels out of the Indiana Senate race, a terrific governor of Indiana, really a tremendous uh, president of Purdue University and had been looking at the race. He's out. Jim Banks, the congressman, is in and now officially endorsed by the NRSC. So taking into account everything we've talked about, the presidential race, that news, McCarthy stuff from several weeks ago, what is your evaluation, Jim, of the, the strength and good standing of the Republican Party from zero, the proverbial dumpster fire, to 10 couldn't be possibly any better, just sunny uplands ahead wherever you look, zero to 10? I'd put it at a six. Um, Not great, but they have control of the House, a decent number of governors and things like that. Um, I'm disappointed to see Mitch Daniels not run, but I I think his record as governor and as president of Purdue were sterling. On the other hand, he was in his 70s and he was not exactly, if you want to argue the Indiana Republican Party needed a fresher face, I'm fine Mm -hmm. with that. I have no real objection to banks. I just didn't like the club for growth uh, trying to make uh, Mitch Daniels, a.k.a. the Blade on our cover. Oh, yeah, um, the Blade. Years Those are the days. Yeah, they, they tried to paint him as a big government establishment guy. You know, he, he went to higher education. Yeah, he was maybe the best conservative college president in the country. Um, so I didn't like that. It's going to be a messy fight. I, I do think that Trump in, in 2024, I do think Trump's political instincts have eroded. We've seen it with everything from abolish the constitution to NFTs to all of his, you know, nonsense stuff. Um, but you know, he look, most Republicans have voted for him at least twice now. And I think he's kind of the default setting for a lot of Republicans. So, uh, as much as his odds are, you know, sinking Ron DeSantis or anybody else has to go out and win this, not just, ex- you know, expected to fall into their laps. Phil Klein, zero to 10. Um, I mean, if we're talking about my, feelings about where Republicans are in terms of their political prospects, I'd say five or six. If I'm talking about um, where Republicans are in terms of their ability to coalesce around an agenda and advance conservative ideas, 
I'd probably be closer to a one or two. Um, but as, as opposed to, uh, in terms of the, the Trump issue, I mean, I think that what we have to say is that, you know, obvious caveats were way, way out, way far in advance. I do think that there was something interesting about this New Hampshire poll that we just had, um, showing DeSantis up by 12 points and, and Trump at 30, which is that, if you go back and look at the New Hampshire uh, primary, I mean, real clear politics is a great asset in, in so far as it has um, not just current polling averages, but it also keeps its archives up of, of past polls. And if you look at the chart from the 2016 Republican primary in New Hampshire, essentially Trump announces in the summer of 2015, within a few weeks, he's way ahead of the field. And nobody ever comes close to him. The fact that DeSantis um, is ahead by 12 points doesn't mean that DeSantis is a lock to win New Hampshire. But it does mean that Trump is more vulnerable now than he has been at any point prior, previously in any campaign, um, in, in any primary. Because in 2016, he never really had a problem or much competition. There were plenty of people and we were writing plenty of articles about, well, Trump's going to fade because how could he not? Right? Like the, the whole idea that he would be the nominee back then was a complete absurdity to us. But if you looked at the actual polls, they showed that nobody ever had a chance. Trump within a few weeks, he's ahead. Nobody comes close. The fact that you're, starting to see instances where he's vulnerable, where in a place like New Hampshire, where he has, obviously, you can't get more, higher name recognition, and he's down at 30 points. That's not a great place. Now, it doesn't mean that DeSantis has this in the bag. It just says that there's a vulnerability for Trump and DeSantis has an opening. We don't know how he'll take advantage of that opening yet. Um, but I think that at this point we could say that it's, it's some, he's somewhat more vulnerable. He has a bit more of a weak underbelly than he did in 2016. So uh, we don't need to get a big, big argument about this, but I think Trump was, was more vulnerable as you portray him. Cause I mean, he lost Iowa. There, there's potential that, you know, another couple of days he wouldn't have finished third in Iowa. And, you know, things, things bounce a little differently in New Hampshire. You know, the, the problem was he, he basically stayed, stayed rock solid in New Hampshire when usually losing Iowa has an f- effect on you. But I, I think it could have, it could have bounced a, um, another way. Charlie, zero to 10, state of the Republican Party? I think it's in quite bad shape, both electorally and intellectually. I would give it a, a four on both. When I look to the next election, I'm not at all convinced that the Republicans are the favorites. And I think they'll probably take the Senate purely because of the map and the House will be a toss up. But that's not where we should be given Joe Biden's mm-hmm. approval rating and the latent economic environment. So I'm, I'm with Jim. I'm a little, little more bullish than Charlie and Phil. I'd put it at a Six bonus exit question to you first again, Jim Garrity. You have the choice. Who would you rather be right now, Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Neither. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be either one of those guys. Um, 
I mean, look, if you're Biden, you're president right now. And, you know, incumbents traditionally have some advantages. So I guess Biden, but that those that seems like a really terrible fate to befall anyone. <laughs> Phil Klein. I think Biden, I mean, even though, you know, all the obvious <laughs> disadvantages of being Biden, um, at the end of the day, um, I don't think that Trump could win a general election again. I just think that after January 6th, he, he lost another layer of people. Um, and each, each thing that he does that's crazy just makes, puts off another chunk of the electorate. There's, mm-hmm. he wins a general election again. Charlie. I'd rather be Joe Biden because if Donald Trump is the candidate for president in 2024, Joe Biden will win. Yeah. So you'd, you'd rather be Biden, assuming he runs, assuming his health allows it. He's going to be the nominee. He's the incumbent president. And then Trump, you know, there's no guarantee that he wins the nomination, maybe, you know, 50-50 odds. And uh, I, I think you, you have to give Biden, you know, depend on conditions, but you have to give Biden the edge in a general election matchup with Trump. So I agree. You'd rather be Joe Biden with that. Let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, the Bonson Group. The state of today's economy seems confusing, vulnerable, and even concerning to many. And that has widespread implications, not just for business owners, job seekers, and consumers, but also for investors. This is where our friends at the Bonson Group come in to provide solutions, clarity, and wisdom in the monetary, fiscal, and geopolitical instability of our day. Led by our own friend and colleague, David Bonson, the Bonson Group manages over $4 billion of client capital and has become the leading independent private wealth management firm in the country, guiding investors to positive returns in 2022, even as the stock market wallowed in a bear market. Their deep commitment to a dividend growth investing, to a philosophical foundation that is not shaken and stirred by the headlines of the day, warrant your attention. Check out DividendCafe.com to learn more about the Bonson Group today. You'll find free weekly economic commentary at DividendCafe.com. And if you're interested in learning more about the Bonson Group, you can do so from that website. So go to DividendCafe.com for your antidote to the laziness and groupthink of today's index investing insanity and discover a more bespoke and tailored solution worthy of your portfolio and financial needs. Again, the Bonson Group at DividendCafe.com. So Jim Garrity, let's hit a few other things before we go. You carried out a successful days-long bout in solo parenting. Yes, my uh, wife and a bunch of our mutual friends had planned a girls' night out. It was originally planned for up in New York City in April 2020, and you know what happened around then. So it's been, you know, kicked the can down the road for now nearly three years. And they said, okay, they're finally getting together. They went out to Nashville this past weekend, had a great time. What she had not realized was that not only would she be away for four days, it's that two of those days were days off for the kids. Now, obviously, I have a teenager, a near teenager. They're a lot easier to take care of these days, but I still had to, you know, take care of meals, make sure they're feeding themselves, make sure they're, you know, taking care of any homework, uh, any of that kind of stuff. We had a great time. We, I mentioned I became an uncle. We went up to have the boys uh, visit their uh, cousin for the first time. And uh, it's kind of nice when you handle solo daddy duty and you take care of everything and you come home, the house is not on fire. The house is clean. We're all sitting down watching uh, the, the football games. It was a really good weekend and, uh, you know, kind of nice to know that, okay, yeah, I can still handle things, at least for four days. 
Way to go, Jim. We are duly impressed. And speaking of impressive, Phil, you've been swimming in a saltwater pool. Yeah. Um, it's, um, you know, I, I switched up the facility where I swim and it, it's just, uh, it has a saltwater pool and it's just much uh, preferred. It has a lot less chlorine. It's just, you don't have that classic chlorine pool smell. Uh, it's less irritable on the skin. It's, it just feels better to swim through. And if you don't have to pay to be the one to have to maintain it, is there's certain maintenance issues, I think, that make salt water pools a little more complicated for homeowners. But if you don't have to deal with that, it's, it's sort of a pleasure to swim it. So when do you swim? Do you do it early morning or end of the day? At night, one of the other advantages of my new pool is that they're open uh, late, so I can go at you know, nine at night. Awesome. So, Charlie, you were very lucky. You got an in-person visit from the legendary Mark Wright. I did. I got to see Mark. I was lucky, and he was lucky because he got to go to the famous beach bar, the one that you make fun of me for – and uh, we had to sit inside because it I, was I don't make I don't make fun of you for it. Well, you you do it's, in some it's, sense. It's like really impressive social science research every time <laughs> you go there. And and you came away with yet another insight from this I, visit with with Mark Wright. I think you're making fun of me now actually. But, uh, <laughs> no, we had to sit inside because it was a chilly 72. But oh my um, gosh. <laughs> Yeah, I got to see Mark. We had a great chat. Uh, we talked about all manner of things, some football, some Oklahoma, uh, what he's doing uh at nr and yes mark uh, mark is the for those who don't know kind of inside baseball here he's the executive editor of national review and a marine officer so the the the, the first national review editor who, who's also been a marine so absolutely well he told me all about that too which is extremely impressive and energetic uh, but uh, i got to hear about it while having a gin and tonic so i didn't have to do any exertions. <laughs> he just showed them to me secondhand so I like Narragansett lager. That's it. I, I really like it. I like the bottles. I like the labels. I like the taste. I like everything about it. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity. What's your pick? So I could go with Andy McCarthy's writings just about any week, but I don't know if you've noticed that there's a new uh, discussion about, oh, you know, there's a grand jury up in New York. Are they going to, you know, is Trump going to get indicted? We've heard variations of the walls are closing in on Donald Trump for the better part of what, four years, five years now. And very often these either turn out to, you know, they don't press charges or they do find guilty, but they charge him a fine and Trump just writes the check. And it always seems like they amount to not much. But then you hear stuff like, well, maybe this one's different. Maybe this is going to be something where he's really going to end up in legal trouble. Uh, Andy's latest is entitled Alvin Bragg goes full Captain Ahab on Trump. This is in reference to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, and that kind of gives you a sense. And I'm just glad Andy is here to sort through this stuff and to say, eh, this one is a serious case. Yeah, this one could have serious consequences. Eh, this is not much. This is a politic. This is a district attorney who wants to build up their name recognition and run for higher office someday. Um, it's you know, it's typical Andy McCarthy, succinct, clear, detailed, and uh, I'm just really glad he's here. Phil Klein, what's your pick? My pick is a piece by Ryan Wills. Um, which is the truth behind the great Florida classroom library freakout. Um, if you were on social media um, in the last week, you may have seen 
these stories and pictures of shelves in Florida classrooms completely um, empty. And supposedly the headlines say that this is all in response to the DeSantis DeSantis law and somehow it's forcing all these teachers to hide every book on the bookshelves to make sure nothing complies with, you know, nothing contradicts the law and they don't get taken off to jail. Um, but Ryan Mills, who's based in Florida, just does a, a really great report job reporting on what the actual truth is, which unsurprisingly is a lot different from what the sort of tweets of empty shelves uh, would have you believe. Charlie Cook. My piece is by Jim. Democrats do an about face on Georgia in which Jim points out that Last year and the year before, Georgia was a racist hellhole. Jim Crow 2.0, 3.0, whichever point oh it was, it was suppressing votes. It was taking us back to the past. Biden even made a speech about it in Jefferson Davis. And now, oh, they're thinking of holding their national convention there in 2024, despite the law in question remaining in place and having been unmolested by any federal laws because the bill they put forward was filibustered. So what was all that about? I chose this because Jim remembered this. Uh, I didn't. I read this news and thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how it will affect the election. And I do that quite a lot, but I think it is a talent to be able to say, hang on a minute, I thought we were doing Georgia is racist and uh, Jim doesn't miss a trick. So, to be honest, my first pick was the Ryan Mills Florida piece, which I agree with Phil was uh, absolutely terrific. But fortunately, I have another absolutely terrific piece in my back pocket by Charlie Cook. No white supremacy isn't to blame for Tyree Nichols' death, where Charlie uh, pours appropriate scorn on this notion. So, that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast and your rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission. Of National U Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Jim. Thanks to Ball and Branch and the Bonson Group. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.